and welcome to Sunday School. No talking up front there. <laughs> I've waited my whole life to do that. <laughs> Very good. General Jan, how are you? Good. It's good to be back. Well, we will continue uh, going through the canons of Dort, picking up where Reverend Godfrey left off last week. We were looking at the fifth head of doctrine and uh, looking at articles one and two. And just by way of reminder where we're at in the canons of Dort, I think it was um, Dr. Godfrey who kind of instead of thinking of it just in terms of tulip, which is great, of course, but thought about it in terms of redemption plan, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, and now redemption preserved. It's a really helpful uh, way to think about it. So the first head of doctrine had to do with how our election was planned from all of eternity, from by the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. And then in space and time, he came and accomplished our salvation, through his life, his death, his obedience, his resurrection, his ascension, and then how that is applied to us as Christ is even now ruling and reigning in heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to us, uh, established the church, has the means of grace, and uh, applies the salvation that he planned and accomplished for us to us. And then there's that question that comes up, well, can that salvation be lost or was I saved, but then I can have a permanent falling away. It's something that's plagued the people of God and um, the church and has been a question for a long time. And the canons of Dort wanted to answer that in terms of redemption preserved, that God not only plans, accomplishes, and applies, but preserves the salvation that he plans and provides. It would be really odd to think that he planned it, accomplished it, applied it, only to see it lost by us, wouldn't it? (laughs) And so it's supposed to be a great comfort to us. One of the reasons why the Canons of Dort goes through this is because it's meant to be a comfort to God's people. It's not meant to inculcate laziness in us. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything for our salvation. There are many things to do in our salvation as part of the new creation. One of our professors in seminary, Highwell Jones, used to talk a lot about wanting us to really make sure that we stress the reality of regeneration. And the Canons of Dort spent a lot of time going through that. That it's not just left up to us uh, at, the, at the very beginning or at the end of whether or not this salvation is given to us or applied to us or we receive it or receive the gifts. It's a gift from beginning to end. And regeneration is a reality, It's a significant reality that transfers you from being in Adam to being in Christ, from being dead to trespasses to being alive to righteousness in Jesus Christ, from being in darkness to being in light. It's not just that we believe different propositional truths, but that something's happened. God has done something. And the third person of the Holy Trinity, who we talk about in terms of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit or the author or giver of life, has done something. He's transferred you. You are now united to Christ. And that there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from Christ. And that's meant to be a great comfort to us. It's meant to be an assurance to us and a help to us as we go on. Because we recognize that there's still this reality of this problem of indwelling sin. If that's true, then why do I still sin? Or people can come along and say, if you sin, you must not have been regenerated. Or 
you must have lost your salvation in one way or another. And scripture wants to come along and assure us that that's not the case. The canons of Dort want want to help clarify that for us. But think of it as, is the Holy Spirit going to fail at his job? I mean, it's almost impossible or scandalous to even think about, right? That the Father planned this, and then Jesus Christ accomplished it, and then the Holy Spirit, mm, he's not quite going to get it done, right? In applying it to us, there's no member of the Holy Spirit that gets an incomplete on the report card, right? It's a full and complete salvation that we get from beginning to end. We are saved by the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And so the salvation that he planned, accomplished, and applied, he will preserve. And it's meant to be a great comfort to us, as I said. But there is the reality that we aren't yet home. Dr. Horton preached a sermon here a couple of weeks ago about the, why do we need to die? And the reality that because we're still sinners and there's a reality for us awaiting in the resurrection that we're a part of now by faith through the Holy Spirit and connected to, but there's still more to come in terms of these blessings. We're going to be raised in newness of life in a way that we will never be able to sin again. Our body will be incorruptible, indestructible. We're still awaiting that. It's part of this promise that we have now. It's part of the regeneration that we have now. But there's still more to come and a fullness of it. And so we recognize indwelling sin. We see this in Scripture, right? Where, where do we recognize that or can even expect that a Christian might struggle with sin? Because you could hear the gospel and say, well, then... Uh, They'll never sin anymore. Once you have the Holy Spirit, you'll never sin. Why would you as a Christian expect that probably isn't the normal Christian life and that the normal Christian life would involve sin in one way or another? Where would you get that idea? Yeah, where in the Bible? Yeah, Romans 7, right? Paul talks about the very things he wants to do. He's not doing the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. He recognizes this battle, this struggle. The unregenerate person doesn't have a struggle, and the person in glorification will not have a struggle. (laughs) You just always do what pleases the Lord. But in this life, there's a battle for the Christian. We're battling against the old man. We're battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil in a way that we didn't when we are unregenerate, in a way that we won't when Christ returns. And it's not like we get really close and God takes us the last way. There's a kind of a humbleness or a humility to this that the Heidelberg says, even the holiest of men has the smallest of beginnings in this life, yet nonetheless we begin, but we will be changed, as Dr. Horton said, in the twinkling of an eye. You'll see him as he is and you'll be like him. And you're part of that now because the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. He's rebirthed you. You are part of the new creation and he is conforming you more and more to the image of Jesus and he will preserve you in the redemption that was accomplished. So Romans 7 would tell us to kind of expect that. Where else in scripture might we expect that a Christian would struggle with sin? Yeah, Romans 3.23. What does that say, Lisa? Yeah. All. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting in the Lord's Prayer 
Why do we say it's our Father, right? So it's Christians, covenant people, we're praying. We ask for our daily bread, and what's the next thing? Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? It's calling upon the God who promised to preserve us in salvation to do just that, to preserve us in that, to forgive us of our sins, even if our pastor gives us no time to confess our sins. (laughs) Um, I thought he was either a super naughty boy this week and didn't want to do it, or that he wasn't naughty at all and just glossed over it, so I don't know. (laughs) So no, even in our liturgy, right, or even in the prayer that Jesus gave us, it's giving the gifts for that. It's using the means. It's using different means. So we recognize that First well, 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's written to a Christian. If I say, I have no sin, I want William to come up here and tackle me and throw me out. Which of us could possibly say that? The reason why we read the law is to remind us of our sin. And then not just leave us there, but drive us outside of ourselves to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because what's the very next verse? It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of most of our sins and cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness. What? Oh, I was wrong? to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Isn't that good news? So it's meant to do that. So it says to forgive us uh, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our uh, debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's asking for God to be God. It's asking for, uh, we're calling upon on our Father to be gracious and propitious to us and kind to us, even as he continues the work that he's begun. And by doing those things, we are being more and more conformed to the image of God. When we come in, when we confess our sins, when we hear the gospel and we believe, these are the means that God uses to sanctify us. And then when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's for believing sinners, isn't it? Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, believing sinners. If it had to be believing perfect ones... None of us could come to the table, could we? Believing sinners, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we recognize this reality of indwelling sin in our life, and uh, the Canons of Dort wants to uh, address this and to kind of explore it. The Canons of Dort is really rich in its comfort, it's rich in its wisdom and its pastoral concern, it's how it's written. Louis Burkhoff, in his uh, book on systematic theology, wrote this about perseverance that I thought might be helpful for us. He said, They who have been once regenerated and effectually called by God into a state of grace can never completely fall away from that state and thus fail to attain eternal salvation, though some may sometimes be overcome by evil and fall into sin. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace begun in the heart 
is continued and brought to completion, it is because God never forsakes his work that believers can continue to stand to the very end. It's well said, isn't it? Let me read that one more time. Perseverance may be defined as the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers can continue to stand to the very end. Yes, Lisa? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Sometimes it is. Instead of called perseverance of the saints, it's called uh, the preservation of the saints because it's really God who's preserving us, isn't it? So I'd be for that if you want to bring a motion to the canons of Dort. <laughs> um, let's look at the canons of Dort. Article 3, if you have, are these books in there or the hymnal? The Forms and Prayers book on page 278. Sorry for the cheap shot, Pastor. <laughs> so, Article 3. <laughs> That's how I took it. Thanks. <laughs> Article 3, God's preservation of the converted. So they were channeling Lisa Horton. It says, because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them, and also because of the temptation of the world and Satan, those who have been converted, converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. Okay? So it's laying out the problem. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. That's what we're talking about in a nutshell. If it was left to ourselves, we would abandon the faith today. I submit to you, all of us would walk away from it. If it was just us. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And the third person of the Holy Trinity is indwelling you. That's what Highwood Jones is trying to get across. The reality of regeneration is staggering. The Holy Spirit who hovered over the deep in creation and brought to fruition this beautiful and amazing universe in which we see is dwelling within you. Just let, give that a minute. The Holy Spirit is living within you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's impossible, it is inconceivable, it is unfathomable that he will not finish his work and that he won't preserve you to the end. And when you get to the end, you won't say, look at what I did. You'll say, holy, holy, holy. Thank you. How amazing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? So it's recognizing that we would not stand, we would all leave the faith today if it weren't for God acting not only for us, but in us. 
And then it says those great words that scripture often says, but God. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them to the end. That's meant to be a great source of comfort to us. That's meant to be reminded to us throughout our liturgy in the sense of we do have the reading of the law, we have a confession of sin, then the next thing we hear is the gospel, assuring us of our forgiveness, assuring us of our righteousness in Christ, and then the next thing we do is praise God, right? What's the right response to salvation? Is to, to praise the Lord. So even our liturgy is structured to be able to remind us of our, ourselves and renew us uh, in this, not only just as a um, oral remembering, but an actual participating in these things to be reminded that we are forgiven and to taste and to see that the Lord is good and that this Lord is living inside of us through his Holy Spirit. Where in Scripture, and the Canons of Dort makes it quite simple, God is faithful, preserving us in this grace, but where in Scripture would you go? Philippians 1, what? Yeah, what 6. Can you stand up and read that for me, brother? You can stand up and do it verbatim. Go ahead. Isn't that great? Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Philippians 1 6. Listen to the context in which Philippians 1.6 comes. Paul starts off his letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, right? To the church, to the leadership of the church, to the saints in the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How's it start off, right? Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making uh, my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why would Paul be sure of that? Why Why wouldn't he say, I'm hoping or I'm wishing Why is he sure? Yeah. Because of the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't look to ourselves for our justification or our sanctification. We look to both uh, for Christ alone. In justification, he is our Savior generally for us. In sanctification, he is our Savior in us. But in either way, our eyes are off of ourself and onto our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our hearts and hope are not clinging to anything that we've done, but to the one who has begun and will complete this work according to his holy word in the Son through his Holy Spirit. 
this unbreakable reality. You are regenerated now. You can't lose your regeneration. It would be impossible. But that doesn't mean we don't have serious struggle with sin or sometimes uh, even... um, Well, we'll read the canons at Dort. They use a word. I'm trying to remember. Outrageous, I think, is the word they use. Let's look at the next article. Article 4. It says, although that power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot, by their own fault, depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into grace, uh, and into sins, and then the next uh, article as well. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time, until after they have turned to the way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face again shines upon them. That's meant to be comforting to us. Of course, those who wrote the Canons of Dorn aren't saying, hey, go and do these things. But they're saying, if you do, along with 1 John, if you do these things, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's a way back. As the pastor said in his sermon this morning, when one who was so led away fell into grievous, outrageous sins, and then he remembered home. He remembered home where the father was. And the father wasn't there shaking his fist at him. His father, open arms, wraps him up, kills the fatted calf. That's what heaven looks like when one repents, when one turns from these things. And our life is a constant repentance, right? As a pastor, I'm not looking for anyone to come in that's struggling with something and tell me, I never struggle with sin, I never have an issue with this. I'm looking for, do they have faith and repentance? Are they repenting of that thing? Are they confessing that thing? And are they seeking to walk in that way? I've told you before, it's no secret, when we do have silent confession in our church, I often confess the same things. Um, I often confess the same things over and over. Things that I was struggling with 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Ah! Wretched man that I am. The very things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? My own efforts. I'm going to work harder this time. Ah, Thanks be to God, it's Jesus Christ, right? And so I need to be reminded of that. And as we do pastoral counseling, that's what we want to be reminded of. If scripture says something is sin and you're saying it's not sin, I'm free to do it, big problem. But if scripture says something is sin and you say, I'm struggling with that sin, say, welcome to the Christian life. Confess that sin and trust and believe that Jesus Christ has fully satisfied for that. And there's nothing in all of creation that will ever be able to separate you 
And through God's power and grace, he will continue to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus. But there should be a sobriety about what we expect in terms of that kind of progress or growth. Even the holiest men have the smallest of beginnings. Yet, nevertheless, we begin. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Yes. Yeah. Because it, it can drive you to want to, I don't know, harm yourself if you keep thinking about all the sins, if you, if you live long enough, uh, the, the sins that you've done in your life. It, sure. It, it drives you crazy remembering those things. Yep. And the longer you live, right, the more you recognize your sin, right? So I have now 55 years worth of sinning to remember rather than 45 or 35 or 25. So I came to know the Lord probably when I was 10, 11 years old, and he regenerated me and began his work in me. And I would say, I would have to say with scripture that I've been sanctified, but I'm also more aware of my sin, and it grieves me now in ways that it didn't before because I understand the holiness of God more than I did. I understand what my sin deserves more, and I understand the results or consequences of my sin on others more than I ever have. And I also understand the grace of God more, what I'm actually forgiven from. And I think that it's meant to be that. There's a, there's a desire or longing to be away from the body and with the Lord, or to go to be with the Lord so that... I don't know how remembering works in heaven, but to not be plagued by that anymore or not to be bothered by that will certainly be part of our, our life. We need to be reminded over and over there is no condemnation for you because we constantly condemn ourselves. But the canons of Dort want to rightly note and uh, Reverend Godfrey noted in his sermon today, there are still consequences for our sin, right? So there's no condemnation for us, but there are consequences. David's multiple sins with uh, lying, deception, adultery, Massive consequences for his family and his kingdom. We could say that he was right with the Lord and that he was forgiven and then there was no condemnation, but there were still consequences. And they're serious. That's why scripture warns us about these things in the path of wisdom. David was a wise man, but David did some really foolish things. And David did some really destructive things. But from David, we get Psalm 32 and we get Psalm 51, right? Now, again, that's what I'm looking for. Not where David could say, I never did any of these things. But David recognizes how awful what he did was. And he looked to the Lord for mercy. And he looked to the Lord for grace. Renew a right spirit within me. Continue this work. You do this. You do this. He recognizes he's got nothing. And he's looking to the Lord alone. One of the best examples, I think, in Scripture, which the canons of Dort point out about this whole thing is Peter. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 
I'll read a longer passage because this story so well illustrates what the canons of Dort are addressing here. This, the drama of scripture, as one theologian said, gives rise to the doctrine. And so let's hear the drama that leads us to our understanding of this doctrine. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to all the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung hymns, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Right there, you know, you should get the ominous music coming, right? Jesus said, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, they went away and prayed for the third, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, uh, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While they were still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man sees him. And they came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legion of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with the swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, uh, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas and the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and command coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We have now heard blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them, and saying, I know not what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said, Peter, certainly you, are, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So here's an example. (laughs) Peter, if he were left to his own strength, he would have denied Jesus and he would have ultimately fallen away. Jesus even said, hey, this is going to happen. And Peter said, no, 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 not me. And others are like, I got this. I can do this on my own. I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, three times you're going to deny me and you're going to do it this very night. And sure enough, Peter, Peter does it. And what's the rest of the story? Oh. <laughs> Why didn't Peter ultimately fall away? Because Jesus restored him. Jesus says to him, Peter, do you know why you didn't fall away? It's because I prayed for you. Isn't that amazing to think about? He didn't pray for Judas. He prayed for Peter. Why didn't Peter go the way of Judas? It wasn't because he was less deserving or more deserving. They both deserve wrath. They both deserve condemnation, just like all of us. Why didn't Peter 
end up at the same place that Judas is because Jesus prayed for him. Because Jesus prayed for him. He said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return, restore your brothers. That's the effectual prayer of the second person of the Holy Trinity, isn't it? It's not the strength of Peter. It's not the wisdom of Peter. Peter, I'm going to say this carefully, is a dunderhead like I am a dunderhead and like you are a dunderhead. We would all walk away from the faith today if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus Christ right now, beloved? In heaven, what is he doing? Interceding for us. (laughs) Why won't you fall away? Because Jesus, having fully satisfied for your sins, is a faithful and merciful high priest and is at the right hand of the Father and is right now praying for you that your faith will not fail and that you will be preserved. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to make that a reality. That's meant to humble us and that is meant to comfort us and it's also meant to free us. You're free in Christ. You can go, you can love, you can serve, you can begin to obey. When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? What resources did he use? The Word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Christian, what are your resources when you are tempted? The Word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. But now, through the one who has conquered sin, the one who has conquered death, the one who has conquered Satan, and is interceding for you at the right hand, Not that you're going to have victory over all those things in and of yourself. You won't. But through Christ, you can know in your rearview mirror is the cross. There is now no more condemnation for you. Jesus Christ paid it all. And in your headlights is glory. That's where you're headed. Rearview mirror is the cross. Glory is in your headlights. And you can move forward in the freedom and the love and the grace in Christ. And he uses these things even. Don't leave prayer. When you're tempted, what do you do? The same things. Run from it, flee from it, Scripture tells us. Pray. If you fall into it, confess. Choose the path of wisdom. Try more and more. Seek more and more to honor God with your choices and not put yourself or others into these kind of situations to begin with. But find your rest and your comfort in the one who preserves you the one who died for you, the one who is currently at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Why didn't Peter fall away? Because Jesus prayed for him. Why won't you fall away? Because Jesus is right now interceding for you. And he will until he calls you home or comes and get you. Isn't that great news? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that you don't pull any punches in scripture and note that we are weak and that we still sin and that we wrestle with the old man and we desire things that we ought not. And we thank you that you don't abandon us to that, but that you have provided your son and that he is fully satisfied for all of our sins and that we are forgiven and that we are justified. We marvel at the reality that we are indwelt by our Holy Spirit and that he has taken up permanent residence, and that we will never be left nor abandoned, 
We know that you will complete the work that you have begun in us. We ask that you would make us more malleable and moldable in your hands. May we love those things which you love and hate those things which you hate. Would you cause us through your word and through your spirit, through your sacraments, through the situations in our life to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus? May we never seek to do that on our own or seek that as the basis for our salvation or our confidence, but would all of those things direct our hearts and our affections and our eyes to Christ because it's in him that we find our forgiveness and our righteousness and our sanctification and our peace now and always. And all God's children said, amen.